You're listening to If Only I Were Wiser podcast, where Raina Wilson brings together wisdom and raw life stories to provide encouragement and truth. So many times it's easy to become discouraged in your own pursuit of health because your story or circumstances look drastically different from your favorite influencer or even the expectations you had for yourself. If that is you, welcome. This space is for you to learn, breathe, and maybe just listen and see what wellness could look like for you. Hey friends, welcome back to the If Only Hour Wiser podcast. On today's episode, I have author, speaker, and founder of Every Woman a Theologian, Felicia Masonheimer. In this episode, Felicia shares her heart behind Every Woman a Theologian, building a healthy rhythm for spiritual disciplines, and what it means to actually speak in truth and love, especially to a world that doesn't make sense around us. Felicia is a wealth of wisdom with so many good encouragements in this episode, so let's dive in. Welcome, Felicia, to the If Only Our Wiser podcast. Thank you so much for honoring us with your time. I'm really looking forward to diving into this conversation. Um, But before we get into the weeds about it, can you share a little bit about you, your family? What does life look like right right now for you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is Felicia Masonheimer. I am married to my husband, Josh. We've been married nine years and we have three children who are seven, five, and two. We homeschool and have a small farm in Northern Michigan. And together with our team of about seven people, we run Every Woman a Theologian. And we have the privilege of creating theological resources for Christians, for especially for women and families, to learn how to own their faith, take ownership for what they believe, and explain it to their community and their culture. So we do Bible studies, kids' books, all sorts of cool resources, and then I write trade books as well. So we have a wide variety of things we get to do and It's a super big blessing to get to work with my husband, work with our team, and talk about theology almost every day. Yeah, that's so cool. Can you start by sharing just like how did Every Woman a Theologian get started? Um, What did that look like from the beginning, grassroots, to kind of where it is now? Sure. So it's it's a long story that I'll condense. (laughs) Um, I've been writing and blogging for 16 years And 10 years ago is when um, I think social media kind of took off. And so I was able to get a little bit more visibility on my writing. And I built a small following, if you will. I don't love that term, but um, reader base of people who enjoyed reading um, kind of these devotional type posts that I would write. I like to write about scripture and how it applied to life, specifically how it applied to sexuality, because I had a history of a pornography addiction and the Lord really freed me from that as a part of my testimony. So I wrote a lot about that. And at the time there wasn't much material for women who struggled in that area. And so it it kind of built this really tight knit online community talking about what does it mean to follow Christ and live a holy life as someone who has struggled in this way. And so from there, I had a religion degree and I began to write more broadly about why does the Bible get to tell us 
what to do with our sexuality in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then where did the Bible even come from? How did it get compiled? So these questions kind of expanded almost like a domino effect into writing more broadly about theology. And because I had gone to school for it, it was just kind of neat what the Lord did because I was at this point married at home with small children. Um, I had never planned on going into ministry. This was just something I was doing on the side. I had a career that I enjoyed in higher education. And so the Lord just opened door after door after door over those slow years and eventually led to where we are today with an international ministry. And I think there's 10 total employees at Every Woman a Theologian between full and part-time, and it supports our family. And we're just really grateful to be part of what the Lord is doing in helping women feel confident to share their faith in their world. Mm -hmm. Which I think is so difficult sometimes. I met the Lord later in life in college, so you know, kind of being exposed to the gospel for th- for the first time later in life. It's so intimidating as a mom, personally, now with a small child to think about, man, how do I even conceptualize this for my family when I am continually <laughs> renewing my mind with the gospel on a daily basis? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's so um, difficult, I think, especially for first generation Christians to have a place to put their like what they know to be true about God in their daily life in communicating it to another person and i feel very compassionate towards those who are first generation christians because my parents in many ways were and were giving me this great foundation while having to learn and grow themselves and now we're always of course all parents are on that journey but um learning to explain what you believe and understand it well enough to communicate it is difficult at times. And yet all Christians are called to that because Mm -hmm. all are called to be disciple makers. Right. Can you start by sharing, I think, three simple, tangible ways kind of to step into encouraging discipleship? Like we have to be disciples first Mm -hmm. ourselves in order to be disciples for our community, our children, our spouses. So how would you encourage women in three simple ways to start with your own discipleship? Well, I love the way you put that. We do need to start with our own discipleship. So three simple ways. Number one, this will sound super basic, but it's so important, is to prioritize your time in the Bible itself. So I understand the draw of devotional books. I write them, <laughs> you know, Yeah. <laughs> um, I do understand the draw, but if someone told me, Hey, Felicia, I can't read your books right now because I'm concentrating on the Bible. I would say, good. I hope you stay there. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, devotional type books are helpful. I'm not against them. I don't think they're wrong or bad. I think they definitely have a place. But most secular people, when they want to combat or argue against Christianity, will actually use the Bible itself. They'll say, the Bible says this, the Mm -hmm. Bible says that. And if you don't know the Bible yourself, if you're not actively reading it, it's going to be very hard to have a conversation, a healthy conversation about that when the atheist knows the Bible better than you, which sometimes is the case. Another example Mm -hmm. would be with our kids. Kids start asking 
crazy good questions pretty young about the Bible. And so being in the word regularly doesn't mean you'll have all the answers, but that you are modeling for them the place to go. So I always say, prioritize the word of God. Don't be a perfectionist about this, but just make it a consistent priority and let the people around you see you doing that. The second thing I would say is surround yourself with godly community. So this doesn't have to be a ton of people. It could just be one or two solid believers. I always try to look for people who are what I would call my spiritual equals, though we're kind of on the same um, pace in our walk with God, but also people who are spiritually ahead of me, people I can learn Mm -hmm. from, usually older women or older couples who can teach me their ways and and disciple me the way Titus 2 mm-hmm. says to do because I can learn from them. And then lastly, I would say really prioritize prayer. Now, I think we think with prayer, we've got to have like 30 minutes alone to do that. But for a lot of us, prayer is just an ongoing conversation throughout the day. I think a designated time for it is great too. But as thoughts pop in your head, as people pop in your head, Commit them to the Lord in prayer and make that just a daily part of your life because the word plus prayer is power. And that is how Mm. we're shaped into strong disciples who can then make other disciples. Absolutely. Those are such great points. I think you made um, an interesting comment about the perfectionist mindset going into um, what would be, quote, your quiet time. And I think Hunter Bielis... I saw it on social media this week was talking about like your quiet time doesn't have to be quiet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if you could share more about how to speak against that perfectionist um, just image of what time in the word is supposed to look like, Mm -hmm. because I think coming out of college, I had an hour in the morning. I sat, I drank my cup of coffee. I was able to read the word. I was able to journal, pray, whatever. And then in this new season of motherhood, it's been like, oh, no, <laughs> where has that time gone? But I know that my spirit still craves that. Yeah. So what maybe quiet time isn't the right word, but maybe a better question would be how do we manage our expectations as we go through the life stages for time in the word? I think you made a great point that maybe quiet time isn't the best word. You know, maybe we should even start by changing <laughs> what we call it because, you know, right. we call it a quiet time. And then when it isn't quiet, we feel like, well, darn, I can't meet God. And I I love right. the example. Susanna Wesley has often talked about the mother of John and Charles Wesley. So John Wesley, famous preacher, Charles Wesley, famous hymn writer. She had 12 children and she would put her apron over her head in the kitchen. And that's how the kids knew she was praying. And Mm. that witness of this faithful mother led to two of her children changing the world through their ministry. But all we really know about Susanna Wesley was that she was a dedicated follower of Christ and she had a ton of children and somehow she still was able to disciple Mm -hmm. them. So quiet time then is maybe not the best term and adjusting our expectations in any season. So maybe it's after you get out of college, you don't get married and have a child. You start working your corporate job and they expect you to be there at seven in the morning and they expect you not to leave before six at night and you have a commute. What do you do then? Like where, when are you supposed right. to do it? Can you do it on your lunch break? Can you listen in the car? I think we have to be willing to be creative in how we meet God because if we look at the history of Christians and the word of God, 
So many of them learned it orally. So they were listening to someone teach it or talk mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of them who couldn't read, that was their only option, right? Um, others who could read were having to do this by candlelight in super uncomfortable, cold, fr- you know, frustrating, hard circumstances, um, finding corners of their day mm-hmm. because they're just trying to work to survive. You know, when we think about how Christians over the course of history made the word a priority in really imperfect and not quiet circumstances, I think it helps us feel less alone that they didn't have Instagram to say, look mm-hmm. at my perfect little setup. They only had the the word of God and and God himself, you know, that's who, who and what they had. And um, so you're in great company if it doesn't look perfect. And we only have had Instagram to show these stylized quiet times for the last 10 years or so. So even before that, mm-hmm. there, there was a different name for the quiet time. That became the name for it right around the 50s and 60s. Before that, it was called the morning watch. And people would get up usually in the mm-hmm. morning. And it was called the morning watch because you were basically like meeting with God and and watching for his truth, like like almost like a guard standing, um, paying attention for what mm, God was going to yeah. say to you. And I don't know, something about that terminology is so striking to me because there's a little bit more sacrifice involved, I feel like. There's a little more, more cost. Like they knew mm-hmm. that it was going to cost them something to get up and watch for what God was going to lead them in that day. Whereas sometimes our quiet times can feel a little bit like a little consumeristic. And I think then we get really disappointed when it doesn't mm-hmm. go the way that mm-hmm. we want. So you're in good company. If it doesn't look great, adjust your expectations, be okay with trying different ways of consuming that information and let the Lord lead you. It's, um, he will meet you there. Yeah. I had a conversation with a friend pretty early on when we moved, um, to Texas, we were stepping into a new ministry season. My husband was starting a new job, all the new things. And I remember asking her like, how do I be consistent in the word? And she asked like, well, have you considered listening to it? And I was like, what do you mean? Listen to it. I thought that was like sinful if I didn't (laughs) read the word. (laughs) Um, which I just laugh now, but that was an actual conversation we had together of like, does it count, you know, to listen to the word or, you know, what are other ways that you would encourage consumership of Mm -hmm. the word? That's not, you know, what we typically think of sit down, here's your journal. (laughs) Yeah. So I will say that I think taking notes at least like one or two times a week, like as a minimum, I think it's really good for most learning styles because people do retain more when they take notes or at least interact with a physical right. Bible at some point. So I do think it's helpful. But I also think that especially in today's day and age, we're now understanding more about how different people learn. So in um, the educational system and in homeschooling, which is what we do, we have to pay attention to how different people consume information and process it and make connections. And the same goes for the Bible. So um, for instance, people who have a hard time sitting still for long periods of time, kinesthetic learners, people with ADHD, a lot of times they have extra energy that needs to be expended. And the problem is not the Bible. It's not like, well, I just can't study the Bible Mm -hmm. because I think God right. made sure the Bible was for everyone. So the, the problem isn't the Bible. The problem is how we're consuming it. So 
For them, I might say, try sitting on an exercise ball and like rolling as you sit. Try holding a stress ball or a fidget spinner while you read or listen as you read the text and follow with your finger. If you're a visual learner, use a lot of colors and take notes, draw diagrams or pictures of what you're reading as you're reading or as you're listening, draw a picture as you listen. Mm-hmm. All of these things we would use, no questions asked for consuming any other kind of information. But when it comes to the yep. Bible, we're like, oh, no, I must sit here for an hour and read it only mm-hmm. this way. And there's so many other yeah. creative ways to engage with it. Um, my kids were listening to me read aloud from Exodus because I needed to get my reading for the day done. And they were there. And I was like, mm-hmm. I'll just read it aloud. And that led to them being super interested in the tabernacle and how it was created. And so we built a replica of the tabernacle that day. And it was Mm -hmm. super fun because then we talked about the sacrificial system and how Jesus fulfilled it. That's obviously a little extra because we're homeschooling. But I think that we can just be open to creativity with how to consume the Bible. That's so encouraging (laughs) because I think you're right. I came out of this like dogmatic view of how I was allowed, I guess, to interact with the word because... I did have a season that I was blessed with with the space to be able to process in one way. And now it's like I have to either read aloud, like you said, while my son is like running around the house mm-hmm. or we're playing it out loud or I dedicate like the first 15 minutes of his nap window to like, mm-hmm. OK, Lord, like, just let me have it, you know, and trying to give him that space. Yes. Yes. I love that. It's so freeing to go about it that way and to understand that you can adjust it for your season. And I think we forget too that those seasons where we did have the hour to study were part of our spiritual formation. They Mm -hmm. laid a foundation and that it just doesn't mean that that's the standard for every season. They may have been necessary for that time because, you know, we were new believers or really young in our faith or, you know, we needed it because we were in college and Mm -hmm. there were a lot of pressures around us. God knew what we needed in that season and now we're in new seasons. And so whatever the demands of this season are, God will give us what we need, but we do have to show up to receive it. And maybe you can comment on this. I've even had to protect my own heart from the consumerist mindset transitioning from, I think, being on social media to then going to the word and I think preparing my heart in the right way because I've like caught myself in the middle of the expectation of like, well, I'm getting all this information. These people are talking about all these things. And then I come to the word thinking like, okay, God, like show up, but not out of a right heart posture, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I love that you said kind of when you come off of social media directly into the Bible, you can really be just looking for that quick, like, bam, bam, quick application, mm-hmm. uh, hot take. And the Bible doesn't do hot takes. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you're kind of like, oh, man, I, today we're reading in Leviticus 1 through 3. There are no hot takes in Leviticus 1 through 3. You know, it's the salt of the covenant with your God. Present salt with each of your offerings. You know, it's not so- exciting. But there's a lot of truth here that God may use later on that we don't know about. And so, yes, just like having those open hands that, okay, I don't feel like I got anything to apply today, but I learned something new about God and that's enough. Definitely. I think we can transition a little bit on the same note. How would you 
define discernment because I think exactly like you said, as we grow in our spiritual maturity, there's a level of discernment in how we consume the word, how we interact with the word, and how we interact with our community. How would you describe discernment? Mm. Well, discernment is a gift of the Holy Spirit. I think that's the first thing we have to understand, um, that he is the one who gives that to us. So we can try to train it, but ultimately the Spirit gives discernment to us, and he mostly does that by using the Word of God. So he reminds us of the truth. Um, I, I think it was Spurgeon who said that discernment is recognizing, not just recognizing bad from good, but good from almost good or right from almost mm. right. So it, yeah. it's often recognizing something that's just slightly off and not necessarily these wild black and white patterns. And so discernment is gift of the spirit, but Hebrews 5 or Hebrews 6, I think the beginning of Hebrews 6 says that we have to train ourselves in the recognition of good and evil. So the spirit gives the gift, but then you have to operate in his gifting. You have to submit to his leading and we can muddy up that process with all this excess social media consumption mm -hmm. and the media right. we consume and the people we listen to. You can actually confuse yourself and make it hard to hear the voice of the spirit, you know, or the truth of the word because everything else has more authority. So we want mm -hmm. to keep the lines of communication with the Lord the cleanest and clearest so that we can discern what is good from what is evil. And so he'll give that gift, but we have to, you know, make sure we're not clogging up the arteries with all sorts of other things. <laughs> that makes so much sense. So like you mentioned, we better experience the word through another supportive community. So I'm thinking through, one, how do we, you know, speak with truth and love? I think you mentioned that the other day. How do we speak with both of those in building community? And then we can kind of transition to, like, family. Like, I'm thinking through the perspective of, like, a new believer, like myself. Like, I didn't have a foundation. I was coming out of college and was like, okay, like, I know what is true based on what God says. But now, now what? Right. Right. So I think when we're new believers, so whether, so I w came to the Lord at 15 in a Christian home, but when you're a new believer, I think it can be really easy to get, you know, super zealous, super dogmatic. And you're like, I'm ready. I'm ready to share. Right. And I think that's a good thing. I think we all could use a dose of that. But at the same time, if we're not careful, we can start to try to play Holy Spirit in the lives of other mm. people. And we're like, I've got it. I'll, I'll take <laughs> yep. care of this. And so there's an element of just remembering that he, the spirit leads evangelism. He leads the words that we speak or he should. And if mm -hmm. that's the case, we can literally be constantly praying, Lord, do you want me to say anything to this person? And if so, will you give me the words and the opportunity? I always ask for both the words and the opportunity, because mm -hmm. if you have the opportunity, but not the words, you're going to be super anxious, super right. urgent feeling that like anxiety. You're like, I should say something, but I don't know what to say. I would say, if that's how you feel, 
the Lord's probably not leading it. That's your urgency. So pray for that person as you are there, but don't say anything unless you have the peace to proceed. On the flip side, some people just say the words without the opportunity. So they force opportunities. And that's most often when we get super unloving is when Mm. we're like, truth is the truth. The truth is inherently loving no matter how I say it, which isn't true because Ephesians says, speak the truth in love. And 1 Corinthians 13 says, this is what love is. It's patient, kind, not envious, not rude, not arrogant. So if you're rude and arrogant and sharing the truth, you're not loving. That's just Mm. fact. Yeah. So we have to be careful, you know, whatever our tendency is, some people tend towards timidity. Some people tend toward aggressiveness. Whatever way that is, you've got to let the Holy Spirit sanctify you into listening for his leading. Mm -hmm. How do you navigate that on a social platform? In my ministry experience, there's a lot of discernment in a lot of places where I've been like, Lord, I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) Like, help me fill the gaps. But then I think like for you and other women that try to be an encouragement through social media, Mm -hmm. that can get really difficult and really muddy because... People can honestly say or believe whatever they want to because they're only seeing a tenth of what you're actually talking about. Right. Very true. So a couple things I've had to learn the hard way on this. Um, First, I tend to be a more aggressive personality. So I have to ask the Lord, do you want me to say this or am I saying this because I think I'm right? Mm, Or even if I know I'm right. Right. Do does it need to be said? Yeah. <laughs> you know, is it my flesh that wants to be like, take that? Or is it the Lord actually leading the conversation? Because if he's leading it, then it will have the tone and the truth that it needs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you also have to accept that you will be misunderstood and misinterpreted because, like you said, people are only seeing 10% of what you're saying, and they'll often take it out of context, and you'll often not be able to cover every angle. I used to try to do that. I used to try to cover every angle to kind of protect myself from misinterpretation, but you can't. I mean, Jesus is misinterpreted to this day, and he was perfect. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I think just learning to listen to the Lord's leading, which is an ongoing thing for me and letting him say, hmm, you know, I don't think you need to go on and talk about that. I think you're trying to prove yourself right, or you're trying to defend a point, or you feel Mm -hmm. personally defensive. And you should just let me be the defense. I can defend myself. I don't need you to do that for me. And so listening very closely to what he wants you to say online Um, And not following, you know, this trend of speaking to every single issue just because you can. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that we should. I think that's also been super interesting and just seeing the way that culture has changed recently. And I say recently, but people are being more vocal about sexuality. People are being more vocal about race. Um, You know, people are being more vocal about church hurt. So it's been interesting to see the way that people perceive Christians in trying to even speak the truth, period. But I also similarly catch myself like aggressively Mm -hmm. being like, oh, well, Lord, like, I know that I'm right. I'll, you know, go and defend your honor. Lies. (laughs) God doesn't need me to do that. (laughs) Yes, it's such a comfort that he 
He is his own best defense. And it's also interesting in Revelation, the Holy Spirit is almost primarily an agent of restraint. Mm. So he's always holding back, holding back, holding back until God's ultimate judgment says, and only, you know, a third was wiped out or only a third was judged. Holy Spirit's like holding back this judgment. And I think that he also is an agent of restraint in us where he's, you know, holding back what we want to do in order that God's best can be done. And that's a loss to ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. our pride, our visibility. The algorithm on social media rewards the negative. It rewards the divisive. It rewards those who cause dissension. Mm-hmm. And yet scripture says, don't participate in division and dissension yeah. and pride. And so what that means is that those of us who are trying to do ministry the slow and faithful way aren't going to get as much visibility or attention, but the fruit that's born from that will be better. And that's what we hold on to. Then I think it becomes like an identity issue. Like I've even wrestled with the Lord recently and being like, well, Lord, I want to be seen, known and valued. And out of his kindness, (laughs) he was audibly like, well, Reina, what are you chasing? Like, what identity are you seeking outside of me? Because if you want to be known, seen, and valued, those are all qualities you get through me. So that was really a humbling, humbling social media moment Mm. for me. (laughs) So good, though. That's awesome. So how do you protect your heart in the midst of navigating that with discernment of knowing, knowing that we're going to be in our human moments of not being seen, not being able to always correct, you know, someone or um, necessarily, I don't know, I just think about the moments where I wish I could say something, or I wish I could encourage someone in a better direction. But it's also like, I know the Lord is saying it's not the right time or place, especially on a social platform when I'm watching other people take that step. And it just gets like you said, way messier Mm -hmm. and causes way more dissension. Mm -hmm. I think there's just this acceptance that you have to know that you're doing what God has asked you to do. I I know that sounds like Mm -hmm. super simple. I think it was John Piper actually who said this once. He was talking about um, prophetic giftings in the sense of like speaking an uncomfortable truth. So it's a little bit of a different situation because in this case, what we're talking about is like refraining from speaking or controlling yourself. But I think it applies both ways. He said, you have to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what you are doing and saying is what exactly what God has called you to do and say. And if you don't know that, then you will be affected by the response to you, the popular response to you. So I'd say it's the same exact thing when you don't speak. So a couple years ago, um, I chose not to speak to a particular issue in Christian culture that Mm -hmm. was a really big deal at the time because I'd already had to deal with two other issues and I had a lot of other stuff going on at home. I couldn't adequately research it to speak to it, but I was getting all of this pressure from people saying, when are you going to talk about this? When are you going to talk about this? And I finally just said, I'm not going to talk about it because not a reporter. I haven't had time to research it. So I can't say anything worth listening to. And I had to get to a point where their response, their demand that I speak to something took second fiddle (laughs) to first fiddle, which is 
right. Christ's authority over what I say and when. And that was a big pivotal moment for me because I have struggled so much with people pleasing and wanting people right. to know I'm a nice person. I, I'm really a likable person. Like you don't have to be mad at me. But when you choose to obey God, it's going to upset some people. And mm -hmm. sometimes that's because you restrain yourself. And sometimes that's because you said something upsetting. And I think I've seen that more so now in overall conversation about like new age health and wellness and like being in the health and wellness sphere. And that could be a whole other conversation. But I've asked the Lord to like guard my heart in that and being like, there's some things that I can talk about that the Lord has gifted me in and I'm passionate and I love to talk about. But there's other places where it's just not it's not my area of expertise, nor is it do I feel called to correct, you know, that person that has this large social media following that mm -hmm. it's, you know, exactly like you said, it's not something worth talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it might be that somebody else is called, you know, to talk to address it. And that's another thing for the unity of the church. I think just respecting, for instance, I'm not called to talk about a lot of political issues. I have very strong political feelings and theology impacts politics for sure. Right. But that's not what I'm called to do. And that's very clear to me. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody, no Christian should ever talk about the connection of theology and politics. I think there are sure. people specifically called to talk about that. And they're actually, they're equipped with their personality to handle it. And... Mm. So we just understanding like the church needs all of these people who are gifted to talk about different things and address different things and not see it as like a competition or like, oh, well, I like this one person, so they should talk about everything when they're not equipped. Right. And I think that comes from the consumer mindset of people having such easy access to you or other women that have been spiritual leaders. Like I've been able to see you guys over the past couple years, my own spiritual journey and think, okay, like... This is where I can use as a source of wisdom, <laughs> but I am more encouraged mm -hmm. because of what you guys share to go back to the word <laughs> because at the end of the day, like mm -hmm. even in Good. all of our brokenness, we're not going to be always right. Right. Only the word is flawless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and trustworthy. So on that note, how, and it might be similar to some of the um, other questions that you've answered, but how would you empower women to develop a spiritual depth in scripture, knowing that there may be a lack of spiritual maturity because of the broad spectrum of theology that people just have access to in general? I think the thing about theology, which obviously I'm passionate about and love teaching and talking about, is that it has to be grounded in scripture. I sound like a broken record here, but it has to be grounded in scripture. So there's a distinction between two kinds of theology. There's biblical theology and there's systematic theology, right? Biblical theology is basically, in super simple terms, just letting the Bible shape your understanding of God and Christ and salvation and all of that. Systematic mm -hmm. theology is also based on the Bible, but it's parsed out into these really systemized sections. And it usually is written from a specific denominational perspective. So you could have a reformed systematic theology, a Mennonite one, a Wesleyan one, etc. And so when we're going to the Bible, the, 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 the problem I think we run into is when people get really excited about theology or about growing in their faith, they might 
start studying a really specific viewpoint and think like, this is the only way to understand theology. And because they are in that world, maybe more than they're in the Bible itself, they start to almost get this perspective on God that's um, skewed a specific direction that isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. what the Bible teaches, or maybe it's not the only perspective on how God does something. And so I think it just keeps coming back to having a biblical theology first, which really happens by consistent exposure to the Bible over time. And then as you have Mm -hmm. that really strong foundation, you can add in these theological podcasts and books and materials to learn more, Mm -hmm. but you're still building on that foundation of the word itself. And so any systems, any authors, anything you read or consume, it's basically just fitting into what you know as this big gospel narrative. And it's not it's not confusing you. You're kind of just building on it and putting the puzzle pieces together in the the overall setting of the Bible. And so I don't know if that makes sense or answers your question exactly, but it, it again goes back to just repeated long-term exposure to the word. And maybe this goes back to like how to speak truth and love and again, being led by the Holy Spirit. But I'm thinking of like, I've seen friends or family members that have studied, you know, and they're, they have a very like dogmatic and like black and white view of whatever they have learned from scripture to be true, you know, but then it's like, but to them, it is it is biblical. They've been in the word. That's what their community is saying. That's what their church is saying. And at that point, how would you encourage others? Like I said, maybe it just goes back to speaking truth and love of like, well, they are in the word. So then, you know, Mm -hmm. do we chalk it up to brokenness and, you know, division of the body? I think that the scary thing is that, you know, we can deceive ourselves with pride and we can allow pride to blind us to what the spirit is actually trying to do. You know, you can have theological, spiritual pride, you know, now it's not biblical theology. It's not the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's partnering with a very sneaky spirit of arrogance that can creep into theology. Of course, the enemy would want this because we know pride's the root of every sin. So if you can come up with this kind of theological pride that then divides the body or allows you to be condescending to other Christians. It doesn't matter that you're violating multiple New Testament laws. <laughs> you are operating in the right theology. And I think this is where you see a lot of, you know, this is tough because um, you'll hear about the, these types of people in the deconstruction movement and progressivism, and they've pushed a lot of people away. But the answer is not to say, well, we can't be certain about anything theologically. Or, you know, the answer is not, let's dump Mm. all theology that has to do with the Bible. That's not the answer. Certainty is not the enemy. Gracelessness is. And so if Mm. you're operating in this gracelessness or this favoritism or this arrogance about your particular denominational system or theological framework, you have to recognize that this is not bearing the fruit of the spirit and let him rein you in. And it's hard because, yeah, it gets annoying to see people lead others astray or like genuinely deceive them. And you can feel just grieved. And that's where I think our prayer life becomes so important because a prayer life is 
is inviting God to do the things we cannot. Mm, yeah. And I think that's that's really where I have to lean in when I feel myself getting, you know, upset or want to take over God's job. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that describes what I think many of us like walk through at different points in our lives is grief. Like I see friends, family members, you know, whoever, and it's a level of grief because I think in general, when we see brokenness of the world in any capacity in the same way that people see it in my life is, man, I just, I want you to understand that there's something better for you. Mm. And, and you're right. Like sometimes I think it comes down to like pride <laughs> and the enemy is just really good at his job. Yeah. Yeah, he is sneaky. Got to be aware of what the Lord is leading and you'll be able to <laughs> say no to <Yeah>. his penis. <laughs> kind of in terms of motherhood, I think this is just a question I've wrestled with through my own spiritual journey. And I think as a mom, um, so I'd love just your wisdom on this. Coming from a home of I did not have a spiritual foundation. We went to church every week, but like I said, I didn't understand the gospel till um I was in college and now I've been able to like grow on that foundation. But I think there's a lot of fear for, like you said, or at least for me, first generation Christians, when they walk into building a family of seeing my son and thinking, I do not want you to walk through the brokenness that I have walked through. So I think there's a level of fear as a mom to think, how do I raise up my child in a way that provides them a foundation of truth without operating out of fear, because that's what I think it is. I think I'm just nervous that my son's going to not have the life that I want for him. Well, you're already ahead if you think about it, because you are providing him a home with a mother who loves the Lord, right? You know, anytime a parent says, I'm concerned about this, about providing a faith foundation for my kid, I always say, well, you're already doing better than you than you think because you're concerned about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're that's already, true. That's true. You care enough to even be concerned, you know, and a lot of people who grow up in really nominal homes, um, their parents weren't concerned, you know, they, they weren't worried about it. And that's the whole reason that um, first generation Christians struggled in their childhoods with faith. So you're already ahead. But I would just, when I look at my own parents and the <clears throat> the foundation that they gave me, I was just asked this question recently and I asked my siblings to confirm it because I have five younger siblings. My parents um, both love the Lord and we saw them in the Bible multiple times a week. So I don't know that it was every day, but definitely multiple times a week. We would see them reading their Bibles. They would read them to us, you know, either as part of our breakfast. They took us to church um, by no means like at every service. You know, it was sometimes two or three times a month, but we went to church and we were discipled actively. But my parents never required us to read the Bible. They never hmm. gave us a reading plan. They never forced us to read it. They never were like... Here's how to do a quiet time that I ever remember. Yeah. And, I, and I asked my siblings, I was like, do you remember this? And they said, no, we were never required <laughs> to read the Bible unless we had a really specific character issue. Then we had to write out verses on that issue. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And yet all six of us are walking with the Lord today and not just walking with him, but truly like dedicated to the Lord, like not nominal, like actually love the Lord. So how does, how did two parents who in many ways 
are first-generation Christians, raise six kids that all are sold out to the Lord. And when I look at it, the thing that I always see is they were consistently, personally walking with God. They were mm. talking about it and not in a legalistic way, and they were doing it in front of us. So we knew that anything they said, it was imperfect. There are things that they did that I don't do, but it it was enough of faithful obedience in front of me that I knew that anything that they said, they were actually trying to live out. And when you talk to kids who were, grew up in legalistic homes, a lot of times the faith stuff was a facade. It was something you put on when you went to church or something you put on when people would see you. But at home and how life was lived, there was gossip, there was criticism, there was anger, there was even abuse. And so these kids, many of whom walk away, saw this gap between what was said about Christianity and how it was lived. And there was no gap for me. And so I think right. that that alone is so vital for parents. It's just your personal example of teaching the word and living it in front of them shows them the gospel's real. It actually changes my life. And of course, they have a choice what they do with that. But my friend Ryan Coatney says that Christian kids are always a miracle, but never an accident. And so you have to be intentional, but ultimately God's grace is what makes up the difference. Mm, that was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Felicia. I definitely needed to hear it. And um, that was just like a really awesome encouragement. So as we wrap up, um, I know that you guys have a podcast, I think, on parenting mm -hmm. littles. So <laughs> we can start by where can our community connect with you, resources that you have, all of those things. Yeah. So I have my primary podcast, which is Verity Podcast. That's the one where I talk about theology and how it applies to life. And then I co-host a podcast with my friend, Ryan Coatney, who is a pastor, has been in children's ministry for years, and we talk about discipling little kids, and that is called Raising Cross-Formed Kids. And then Every Woman a Theologian can be found on everywomanatheologian.com. It's where our shop is, my blog, our library of books and eBooks, and then I have a new book that comes out February 28th. And that is called Every Woman a Theologian. And so we're really excited to put that out into the world. Woohoo. Yeah. So excited. Y'all, her resources are awesome. I've like binged <laughs> your um, co-hosted show on small children because <laughs> my son's almost two. And my husband grew up in a very um, biblical foundation home. So it's really cool to like walk with my husband as we set the foundation for our home. So that's a side note, but it's been an awesome resource. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Yes. So for our closing question, it's for all of our guests, as you've already shared a wealth of wisdom here. But if you could provide any wisdom to your younger self or community that is listening, what would you share? Well, definitely not my wisdom, but <laughs> from the word, I think I overcomplicated and overthought so much as a young believer. And I think it took me way too long to realize that Jesus says, if you want to live the Christian life, you want to bear the fruit of the spirit, you want to have what it takes to be a disciple, just abide in me. That's all he mm. says. <laughs> 
So yeah. when I get like oh, all out of, you know, out of shape and all, you know, confused about like, what am I supposed to do? I just return back to John 15 where he says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. Mm, that's beautiful. And such a good reminder. Abide. That was actually one of the first passages that my friend and I read in college. She'll laugh when she hears this. <laughs> but it was one of the first passages the Lord actually used to speak to my heart was abiding. Wow. Um, Amazing. So that's super encouraging. So Felicia, thank you so much for this conversation. It has been a blessing to my own heart, and I know it will be a blessing to so many others. So thank you so much for connecting and sharing with us, and we'll catch you guys on the next episode. This episode of If Only Our Wiser has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more episodes so you don't miss any encouragement. And don't forget to rate and review so we can continue to build our community and share more about topics that will be healing and helpful for you. See you in the next episode.